Our scripture passage this morning that we're going to be considering is Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 22 through 36, so I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Before we consider God's word, let's pause again to ask for God's direction and guidance by his Holy Spirit. Our Father, we come to Scripture again, and we would pray for the measure of your Spirit needed and necessary for us to understand your Word. Help us never to take it for granted, Father, that the Scriptures which you have given, both Old and New Testament, are inspired of you, breathed out by you, and therefore have a message that transcends what we can ordinarily know and understand Uh, Father, that which we can't fully comprehend at all, apart from the guidance and direction and influence of your Holy Spirit, it's that which we pray for now. We would ask, Lord God, that you would guide us into all truth. Uh, We know that this is how you feed those who are Christians. You feed them by your word, your truth. We know it's not only that which brings us to faith, but your word sustains us in our faith sanctifies us, guides us, leads us, directs us. And in the final analysis, Father, as we sit under your word, we pray that your word would govern us in such a way that we would want to follow Jesus more faithfully. This we pray in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Now, what words are these? This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is the first sermon that's preached uh, after uh, the death, resurrection of Jesus and some 50 days later at the Feast of Pentecost. This is, as it were, the first Christian sermon ever preached. We have broken into it after Peter's introduction And so he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption." You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your patience, presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as we read this, I want us to reflect upon um, the, the character of the message of Peter about Jesus. And if you caught it while you were hearing it, four times Peter stresses the idea of knowing with certainty. Knowing the things of God, knowing the things of Christ, knowing what is significant between God and man with certainty, an absolute objective certainty. Now, I mention that to you because I want you to think about American culture today, America's religious culture. You and I know that the dominant religious culture of America will say this about a person's relationship with God. It's personal. It's private. It's all about how I feel about God. It's, it's, it's immune to anyone saying anything bad about it. Uh, because my relationship with God is my business and it's nobody else's business and it's all about how I personally feel about religious, spiritual things. In essence, what's happened in my lifetime, uh, the dominant American religion went from the Christian faith, which was all about something that God did in human history, which could be looked at, and the evidences could be looked at, to now the dominant religion in America is about what I feel in my heart with relationship to God. You can't see it, but I know it's true because I feel it within my heart. Now, I want you to understand something that has happened in our culture. A tremendous shift has taken place. Uh, many of those who call themselves Christians identify with this later version of Christianity rather than the earlier version of Christianity. This later version of Christianity, where even my Christianity is all about what I feel inside my heart, what I feel about God, which is very different than what the Apostle Peter is saying in his message on the day of Pentecost. Uh, because Peter is basically saying, there are things that took place here, you are all aware of it, and we are witnesses of it. We're talking about religion that's public. We're talking about religious faith that's grounded in things that actually happened. We're talking about a belief system connecting us to God that is far more important than what you might 
feel in your own heart. Not that what you feel in your heart isn't important. Of course it's important. But it's not primary. Now that's the point of this message. And that's the point of Peter's message. The Christian faith, genuine Christian faith, is about things that actually happened. And the ultimate thing that happened that makes the Christian faith either true or false is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What I want to emphasize this morning is not only is that the true testimony of the Christian faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, but this resurrection of Christ was something that goes way back in terms of when it was first announced in human history, a thousand years before Christ came, because the Old Testament itself, especially through King David, predicted and prophesied and witnessed to this Christian reality that God would raise his son from the dead. And so this morning, you notice the title, King David, King Jesus. We're drawing the connection between David and Jesus as Peter presents it in this passage, this first Christian sermon that's given in the book of Acts. Now, I introduce this by saying that there's certain language that Peter emphasizes. It's the language of knowing with certainty. So the first thing we're going to see, and the second thing we're going to see, is about what David knew with certainty. In fact, we can say it this way. What did David know with certainty? And then secondly, what did David foreknow with certainty? And then thirdly, we can consider Peter's response. That is to say, Peter expects his audience to have a response where he commands them, you must know this with certainty. So again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes the Christian faith differ from every other religion on the face of the earth. Every other religion on the face of the earth, its final analysis is, this is what I believe because my heart tells me to. The Christian faith is, believe this because God did this for those who would believe it and understand it, repent and believe. All the difference in the world between that which happened and that which you just wish might be true. Now, firstly, first place, we're going to look at what David himself knew because of what God had communicated to David. Now, this we find... I've gone through four pages of my notes here. <laughs> this we find in verse 30. So if you have the text in front of you, in verse 30, this is what Peter says about David. David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Now what's going on here is that Peter is going to present the evidences that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the first thing that he's going to reference is the fact that God made that promise to David a thousand years before Christ came 
that uh, the, the great eminence of David's throne was going to be such that God would promise and covenant on oath with David, there will come one of your descendants who will sit upon your throne forever. Now, this happens in the context in which David is saying, God, I want to build you a house. And Nathan the prophet comes back from God and Nathan says, well, God says, you're not going to build my house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingship and a dynasty and a kingdom that's going to last forever. Now, the promise is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Breaking into the middle of verse 11, we read, this is Nathan describing what God is saying to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in this oath that God makes to David, it's also a covenant as we shall see, Nathan is speaking to David, God is speaking to David through Nathan, about what's going to happen in the near future, what's going to happen presently in the very next generation, but then what's going to happen in the far distant future. So with respect to the things that are going to happen near to David's time, uh, God says, look, your son, we find out Solomon, is going to be the next king. It's Solomon whose kingdom God's going to establish like he did David's kingdom. And it's Solomon who's going to build this house for God, who's going to build the temple. And God's going to have a father-son relationship with Solomon, like he did with David. And if Solomon shall step out of line, God's going to discipline him. But unlike Saul, when Saul stepped out of line, the kingdom was taken away from Saul. When Solomon steps out of line, God will discipline him, but he will never remove his covenant love ever from Solomon. Okay, So that's the near part of the promise. The distant part of the promise is in verse 16, which says David's house and David's kingdom and his throne would be established forever. Now, the fact that David understood the promise that way shows up a few verses later when David is praying in response to what Nathan has told him. And we see this in verse 19, where David says, Yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God, meaning God is so all-powerful that it has taken, it doesn't take a lot of God's power to do this because God is so powerful, even though what he's promised to David is absolutely incredible. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Uh, the New American Standard puts in there the distant future. 
And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Another way of saying it, what you have established here is going to have global significance. So the point is this. David knew with certainty that the distant future was in view, and David knew with certainty what God had promised was going to come to pass. Uh, We see this reflected in uh, Psalm 89, which we've read part of it during the service today. Uh, Ezra, the uh, Ethanite, no, it's Ethan, the Ezraite, Unless I read it, how do I really know? You know, It's Ethan, the Ezraite, who has written this psalm, and it's sometime after the kingship of David, and perhaps during the end of the kingship of Solomon, and perhaps even after the kingship of Solomon, when things are not necessarily going so well for Israel. But this is what, this is what Ethan says. 89, psalm 89, verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant... With my chosen, I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne to all generations. Later on in that same psalm, he says, I will never lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me and like the moon, established forever. Speaking of the distant future, Speaking of a descendant of David, a descendant of David taking the throne and being on that throne forever. Now, now what is this? How did the Jews understand this for the next thousand years? They understood this as God promising the Messiah of Israel to be a son of David and that the Messiah would have his kingdom established forever. And, of course, that's why when Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday... Uh, the crowds were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, because the title son of David was a designation for Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, let me sum up this first point. David knows with certainty what God has promised to him. David knew, as Peter puts it, God had sworn to him by oath, God had made this covenant commitment to David that one of David's descendants would sit upon the throne forever. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you know anything in your relationship with God with as much certainty as David did? I hope you think yes. And I hope it's not just you think yes, I hope it's your deepest conviction. Because the promises of God and the gospel of his son are not iffy. They're not maybe. They're not possibly. The promises are given with absolute certainty for believers to believe and to trust. And when God says... Through Christ, your sins are forgiven. That is absolutely certain. It's not iffy. There's not some possibility that this might not be true. 
In fact, what I would say is that everyone who's truly a Christian with absolute certainty can claim as your personal testimony the 23rd Psalm. You're able to say with absolute certainty, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thou, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, there's the certainty, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the gospel, you have God's promises that are every bit as certain as God's great covenant with David by which he was going to bring his own son, the Messiah, into the world. Now, secondly, within Peter's sermon, we see not only what David knew, but we see what David foreknew. And the distinction here is that God made this direct promise to David through Nathan But then God also used David as a prophet. And, you know, most, a little more than half at least of all the Psalms are written by David. He was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And in many of those Psalms, we have passages and even entire Psalms that are recognized, the ancient Jews recognized them. We find them mentioned in the New Testament as containing prophecies about Christ, prophecies about the Messiah to come. And then Peter is going to speak about, and Peter is going to actually use two such psalms as the basis for what he's going to say concerning what David foreknew. He's going to reference Psalm 16. He's going to reference Psalm 110. Now, in terms of preaching Christ to his audience that day, The significance of these two psalms are these. First, Psalm 16. In that psalm, David prophesies, David foreknows the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In Psalm 110, David prophesies, David foreknows the raising up and exaltation of Christ to the right hand of of God the Father. Now, to look at this, we see in verse 16, this is verses 25 to 28, uh, Peter quoting what David foreknew. Verse 11, well, verse 25 begins verse 11 in Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. Therefore, I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, Peter argues this way, beginning at verse 29. Basically, Peter says this. We can say with confidence that David isn't speaking about himself. How do we know this? Well, because David died, and David's buried, and his tomb is with us even to this day. But, then Peter references, verse 30, but David was a prophet, and David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, that is, he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. In the tomb, the flesh of Jesus did not decay. Now that's very straightforward. Peter's saying that King David, inspired as a prophet, prophesied about the resurrection of the Christ, that God would not abandon his son to death, that God would not allow the body of his son to see the corruption of the grave, but would raise him from the dead. Now, that's what David foreknew with certainty. And then Peter goes on to reference Psalm 110. That's about the exaltation of Christ to heaven where Christ sits at the Father's right hand. David says in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool beneath your feet. Now, Jesus himself used this passage to teach that not only was the Messiah the son of David, but the Messiah was also David's Lord. So that David, great King David, would give birth to the Messiah, but great King David would recognize the Messiah as his own Lord. David foresees that the Messiah is going to be resurrected from the dead and exalted to the Father's right hand so that David will recognize Jesus as Lord and Christ. That's Peter's point. That's what David foreknew. That's what David understood by reason of the fact that God had made David to be a prophet and to prophesy these things, that the Christ would conquer death, be raised from the dead, sit at the Father's right hand, to sit upon the throne at the Father's right hand, establishing that kingdom forever. Now I want you to think about the significance of foreknowledge for a minute. David had this foreknowledge by virtue of being a prophet. We've all been exposed to a number of different kinds of storylines and scenarios of some sort of science fiction-ish kind of thing. It might be in a TV show, it might be in a book, it might be in a movie, in which someone has true, genuine foreknowledge of the future. What do they always do with it? They go to the bookies, and they bet, <laughs> because they know who's going to win the game. They know which horse is going to win the Kentucky Derby. 
They know what's going to happen in the Final Four of the uh, March Madness. Uh, they know what's going to happen in the, in the World Series. They know these things ahead of time, and so they bet on them in such a way that they gain a lot of money. I want you to understand that the world is locked in on that. What would be the advantage of foreknowledge uh, to line our pockets? If only we could know the stock market. If only we could advise our financial advisors what to do with our 401ks, right? But you as a Christian have a far, far more significant foreknowledge. And it's given to you in the scriptures. Look, the Bible places foreknowledge into these kinds of categories. Life and death. Time and eternity. Eternal consequences. We have the certain foreknowledge of certain future events. For instance, Hebrews 9.27 says, with respect to the future, it is appointed to man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now this foreknowledge is infinitely more valuable than the riches of this world. To know that each of us have a future appointment before the judgment seat of Christ. To know that we're going to meet with the creator and redeemer of the universe. That has the power to put everything in life into its proper perspective. Because Paul says, in light of this, Therefore, we make it our aim to please God. But we also have this foreknowledge before the judgment seat of Christ that we will be safe and secure because of the promises of God with respect to that day. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Foreknowledge of the future. Romans 8, 28, foreknowledge of the future. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Future tense. Definite foreknowledge of the future. Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who is to, to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just as David foreknew the resurrection of Christ from the dead, just as David foreknew the exaltation of the Christ to the right hand of the Father, 
we foreknow the power of these truths that we will be safe and secure in the life to come. That we do not face condemnation when we die. That we will be delivered from everything that might happen to those who don't believe in Jesus. Why? Because the promise of Scripture is this. Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised up for our justification. Finally, the response that Peter commands his audience to hear. He says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The first thing they have to know for certain, their role in the death of Christ. The house of Israel put Jesus to death. Back in verse 23, uh, Peter put it this way. This Jesus you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Yes, the Romans were the executioners, but you, the house of Israel, you were the judge and you were the jury. You played that decisive role you judged him worthy of death. You called for his crucifixion. The second thing that Peter mentions, that they must know, God hasn't abandoned them in spite of their role in the death of Jesus. Because in spite of their incredible sin, the house of Israel was to know for certain that God had made Jesus Lord and Christ, even their Lord and their Christ to all who would repent and believe in Jesus. Because that's the rest of the story of the sermon. Peter preaches this. Their hearts are cut, pierced, convicted. They ask, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and believe. How does that relate to us? What Peter commanded the house of Israel to know and to know for certain applies to all mankind. All people everywhere are to know that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Even as the prophet Isaiah has said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All people are to know that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All people everywhere are to know Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and if we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And that is what the Christian faith has always professed about genuine saving faith. 
It is a faith that connects us to what God did in Christ. The cross, the tomb, and most significantly, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that's why we have sung, and we'll sing again, this new song that we sang this morning, which is a powerful gospel invitation. Come, behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. Father, may we have this anchor into what you have done, that our hope is not a vain aspect of wishful thinking, that we recognize that you raised Jesus from the dead. And in raising him from the dead, you have vindicated all that he claimed to be and all that you have said about him that he is our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.